0: Hi, it's Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called Genetic Scientists Uncover the Final End to All Diets. Thanks to a powerful new diet designed to work with your unique body chemistry, Dr. Peter J. Didamo, physician and author of the best-selling diet book, Eat Right for Your Type, has made his amazing diet program even better. His new book, Change Your Genetic Destiny, builds on his original program by incorporating groundbreaking research from the field of genetics. In this audio interview, Dr. Didamo explains his remarkable new approach to achieving optimal health. Here's what you're going to learn in this interview. You'll learn the shocking reason why one-size-fits-all diets don't work. You'll learn the four ways that your blood type affects your health. You'll learn revolutionary insight into how your genes affect your health. How to identify your unique genetic type. You'll learn why you're not doomed to repeat your family's health history. You'll learn how you may be damaging your body without even knowing it. You'll learn why you should take control of your health right now. Your body is unique. Stop trying to follow the latest diet trends because they seem to be working for others. Dr. Dedamo has designed a scientifically based diet that's designed to work for you because it addresses your body's unique needs. Now listen in, and you'll learn the secrets to better health. Now let's get going.
1: Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best wellness-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health challenges, please send them to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. So, Dr. Dadamo, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Chris. So, you're the author of Change Your Genetic Destiny and also Eat Right for Your Type and very interesting books talking about blood type and some really fascinating subjects. Actually,
2: I haven't studied it for a very long time. Certainly, my first book's now, out almost 15 years, still top of the charts on Amazon in terms of health. But, yeah, it's, my father worked on it for a period of time before I did, so... We've been in this area for probably the better part of half a century.
1: So you're actually a naturopathic doctor. Now, what's the difference between a naturopath and just kind of your regular physician?
2: Well, I mean, it's a small profession that is licensed to provide the same level of primary care. We have a focus on more lifestyle of things like nutrition. We're skilled in a lot of traditional medicine. So, for instance, naturopaths and naturopaths tend to be very versed medical medicines and herbs and vitamins and things like that. So I'd summarize it by saying it's a healing art that basically has its prime focus health promotion, disease prevention, wellness-based approach, which is to say that there's nothing wrong with the other approach, it's just more of a disease-based approach and we try to have people use as little of the other system as possible. So it's kind of science-based. I mean, for so most of the stuff that we do would make perfect sense to any scientist. We go through inordinate efforts to try to keep the person healthy hopefully minimize the use of the other system by virtue of teaching them things that they can do themselves, like he blab, stuff like that. Well the link between blood type and diet is actually something my dad worked on prior to my getting interested in it. And so as I said before, he spent the greater part of the nineteen fifties and sixties trying to figure out why some people did better on one type of diet and other people did better on another type of diet. And at the time there really wasn't many other genes you could look at. I mean, you know, they didn't have genetic testing to the degree they have now. So it was one of the few to Teslar relatively easily with blood type. It's interesting that he sort of went on that premise because he did come up with an observation that really is quite powerful even to this day that roughly 40% of the population could be on a more limited carbohydrate, high protein diet and another 40% of the population would be better suited to be on a Mediterranean or more plant-based diet, complex carbohydrates and these are the eggs. So right off the bat, you've got something along the lines of 85% of the population that you. It's very simple distinction about. Who goes this way, who goes that. The interesting thing is of course to this day how that duality exists on the diet bookshelf between those two basic approaches. And yet in each one of those books that are out there, be they Atkins or the Ornish diet, you know, they have a certain exclusivity that you know, the Ornish basically would put everybody on a low fat diet, Atkins basically low carb, high protein. And yet, you know, they have people who are adherents and believers and detractors. So you know that each one is representing a percentage of the two. So maybe the major breakthrough was simply to be able to say that most approaches are going to be valuable, but you need to study who that approach would be the most beneficial for. And it turns out that blood type is a big influence on it. Yeah, medicine is having a hard time with personalization in general. Because like I said before, largely medicine is a disease care system. So in essence, you're waiting until the person has a pathology. There's very little about personalization you need to worry about when a person has high blood types. Cardiovascular cardiovascular proposition. The idea of personalization is that you're trying to come up with the way that you can optimize a person's habits, the choices that they make. To get them a better than average level of wellness, so that basically they're that much more suited to. So it's a whole lot more about food on a personalized aspect than it is about medicine in general. I'll try to break it down into a couple of small little midlets so that people can sort of get a feel for the notion that our blood type is limited to our blood, which is not true. So you should understand that the thing that makes us have blood type A or blood type O is a chemical that's found all through our body. It's found actually more in your digestive tract than it is in your blood. So the thing that makes me blood type A is actually a chemical that's found throughout my digestive tract. And so much of how we immunologically, how our immune system deals with the food that we intake is related to dynamics about things like how it relates to the blood type type in our digestive tract and many foods contain proteins that actually react directly with these blood type chemicals in our digestive tract and can cause all sorts of difficulties. So the first way that blood type influences diet is actually the physical manifestation of your blood type influences certain relationships with food and if a person has a different blood type, these foods would react perhaps in a different way or not react at all. give you a perfect example. I'm going to send a blood type A. Now if I was to just up a plate of lima beans and eat that, you could observe, believe it or not, damage occurring to my intestinal tract and if some of it got into my bloodstream, my cells of my blood would actually start to clump up. Now, if you gave that plate of lima beans to my wife, who's type O, nothing at all would happen because the clumping is related to proteins in that food that only clump certain chemicals of a certain blood type. And if you don't have that blood type, you're left completely alone. Now, what happens when you clump up, right? tract, it slows down your metabolism. So the first link between blood type and diet is that we consume many of them, interact directly with our body by interacting with our blood type chemicals in our digestive tract directly. The second link is that blood type seems to control levels of certain types of fluids that we make in our digestive tract. For instance, it's known that blood type O, since the 1950s, they've known that this blood type has more ulcers than the other blood types. They know that blood type A gets a certain type of anemia. That's only seen in when people don't make enough acid in So here you have one blood type that makes a lot of acid in their stomach and one blood type that gets the type of anemia that you only get when you don't make acid in your stomach. So you can imagine who would be better on the protein diet would be the person probably with the acid levels that are pretty high. And the person who's going to mess up the protein is going to be the person who can't make a lot of acid in their stomach. So the analogy is a lot like automobiles. If you buy an economy car and put in high-octane gasoline, It'll run okay for a while, but really the engine isn't designed for that type of gasoline. Now if you buy a Porsche and put in economy gasoline, it will run okay for a while, but the engine really is designed to have a different type. And people are like this as well. So the single thing that you're doing, second theory, is that you're giving the person a diet that's in alignment with their capacities digestively that seems to be linked the genetics of their book. There's countless tens of thousands of people who have actually seen myself or my father, but there's probably about 5 million people who bought that book. And if we put in worldwide sales, maybe close to 10 million, I get a kick out of watching football games because I look at the aerial shot of the stadium and then I try to multiply that to figure out how many people have read my book. One of the things that we've done over the years on my website would be allow people to read sort of history, you know, kind of self-reported history. and so stopped doing it because it was clogging up the server, there were so many, but we stopped it around, I think, 15,000. And then we ran into a computer program to analyze the data and came up with some interesting things. That inordinate numbers of people had improvements in things that didn't seem to be typically thought to be improved by a diet. For instance, we found that people who were type O who went on the type O diet often reported an improvement in thyroid condition. We found that people who were type A who went on the type A diet often reported an improvement in psoriasis. People, for instance, who were type B who went on the type B diet, seemed to report that there was an improvement in migraine headaches. So what would be this relationship when basically you're looking at food as medicine at this point, not just simply food as a device to get into a dress for your sister's wedding or something like that. You're looking at a powerful effect. And actually, it was this powerful effect of food that actually prompted me to go from writing books about blood types to writing books about using your diet to influence the expression of your genes. Actually occupied the last four years of my life, and is built on the work with blood type but is actually kind of a little different. Because when you give a person a diet based on their blood type, you're really going through the scientific literature and whatever analysis you're doing, and you're constructing a picture of that blood type, the physiology, the types of illnesses they get, the elements of their immune system, all those things, and then you adapt a diet to that manifestation, that genetic manifestation. So you're more or less fitting a person what we know about that gene, blood type. About four years ago, I realized that there was another way of doing it because there's a revolution going on in genetics right now.
1: Also, Dr. Dadama, why don't you go ahead and give out your website?
2: You can go to the website that's named after my last name, dadamo, dot com, And that's the major website. That one basically has message boards and blogs and bulletin boards and forums, tremendously helpful online community moderated, family-friendly, all the things you'd want in a place to go get information, get help, get set up, that's the major one for that, tadamo.com. Well, you know, the genetics that you may have learned in high school is the genetics that I certainly learned. Although it is valid, you know, the idea that genes are dominant or genes are recessive and you want to get a gene for brown eyes or blue eyes, it's pretty much the end of the story. That's valid. I think the notion of what Darwin called natural selection and evolution, that's valid as well, except that that's been viewed as the way that we adapt to changes in our bodies, and that is no longer valid. It turns out that actually we are far more able to respond to the environment, not by waiting for some random mutation to occur over millions of years, but actually to take the genes that we already possess and actually adjust as if the gene had a little volume control on it in response to changes in the environment. So roughly 70% of your genes, including almost all the genes that control your metabolism, your sensitivity to hormones, most of the elements of your immune function, literally have little volume controls on them that regulate not the gene itself, but the expression of the gene. I mean, a good example, I have use this one a lot because people understand it. If you smoked a cigarette as a high school student, you probably had a relatively unpleasant. But if you kept it up, And eventually, you become habituated and maybe even addicted because you find it so pleasurable. Now, believe it or not, that was a genetic event. You actually turned on genes that were involved in detoxifying nicotine that you hadn't turned on before. So in response to an environmental change, the body actually went and readjusted the expression of certain genes. One can imagine that this goes on all the time. You know, we change environmental situations, we change and we change. that if you could identify certain characteristics, you could actually engineer certain diets that would actually help to optimize the expression of these genes. So the idea was to understand, number one, that this gene expression occurs in two basic areas. It occurs in the prenatal period, and it occurs in the preceding three or four generations in the sample. The reason being that when you are conceived, you not only inherit the genes from the sample, you inherit the volume control settings, of those, two. So what the parents did, one way or the other, to make those volume controls better or worse, was what actually was passed on to the offspring. So it's like if somebody gave you a stereo set and decided that they liked the treble one way and the bass the other, and that's the way they gave it to you. But then you decided, well, I like the treble this way and the bass that way, and you passed it on to your kids. So not only are you giving them the stereo set, but you're giving the settings of the stereo set as well. Not only can you do amazingly wonderful things to make the things in your family genetics improve, but we understand why certain things run in families when it's very evident that the reason that it's there is not because the family has a gene that some other family doesn't have. We've been looking, trying to find the genes for diabetes, and we're up to 45, and there's no single gene. whether well, the gene for autism, where they're certainly up to like about 19, Alzheimer's 33, So in essence, it's not the case, for instance, even more depressing is that, you know, we humans have 27,000 genes, but earthworms have 44,000. So we're not at the top of the heap because we're more complicated. We're at the top of the heap because we evolve. Once we go from that genetic blueprint, a whole series of other things start to take over that involve the expression of those genes. That's where we have the complicated notion. It's not because we're genetically more complicated. It's just that our genes are programmed to blossom to a much greater degree than an
1: I'm Chris Costello, reporting from Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Sounds like you're saying we have a lot of control over the expression of those genes.
2: We do, and actually the studies are actually mind-boggling. There's a very famous study that looked at mice that were bred to be overweight, develop diabetes, and die of cancer in one year. So it was a mouse that was a laboratory species that was engineered to have these characteristics inbred into the strain. Well, they discovered this. if you took the pregnant mice, gave them some simple things, anything you could buy in a local health food store, folic acid, choline, vitamin B12, certain other things that increased what's known as methylation, which is a chemical reaction that's really kind of the chemical equivalent of the volume control thing. Now, you could actually engineer out those characteristics in the next generation of mice and that generation of mice would actually go on to pass the improvement on anything that you can identify as being inherently heritable in some sort of family dynamic. Like we said before, why is the Jones family more prone to Alzheimer's and the Smith family is more prone to colon cancer? Not because the Jones family has a gene that the Smith family is missing for one thing and the Smith family has got a different gene, but 70% of their normal genes, Are adjusted in some cockamamie configuration that results in them getting this. And in the other family, those same 70% of the fundamentally normal genes are simply adjusted in a way that winds up with an expression that occurs that produces this problem in that family. The single biggest influences are going to be the prenatal experience, the immediate family history, two or three generations going back, not a million years ago. The things that you are doing. your grandparents are doing are the things that you're dealing with the legacy of. Strangely enough, somebody wrote a very provocative article in one of the scientific journals and they said, you know, the poisons that your grandparents were exposed to may well wind up being the thing that gives you the cancer that you get today. And the mercury in the fish that you're eating today may well be the thing that gives the problems to your grandchildren with the generations down the road. You know, we're looking at things like breast cancer and prostate cancer And thinking that these things are things that develop in the course of a person's exposure, maybe in their later life to a chemical or a pesticide. But there's a lot more evidence that suggests that this is the result of imprinting. That's the result of how these genes are actually adjusted in prenatal life. So if you can adjust them one way, theoretically, it's possible, given enough influence, you can adjust them some other way. But if you can't, let's say if you get to my age where you're 55 years old, your genes are not that adjustable at that point. You've lost what geneticists call plasticity. You can do something else because you see, you can measure the recording of the actions of those genes on your own body and come to certain conclusions and then adopt a strategy that's really the equivalent of financial planning for yourself. You know, just like the guy who does financial planning would say, well, we've got this amount, this is the kind of retirement we can configure for you. You can do an analysis of yourself, come to the conclusions of the areas that are weak or as a result that they've been imprinted in this area, and you can actually put together a protocol that actually kind of reverses so you're changing destiny in a different way, it.
1: And people can find out more about that, Dr. Damo, if they read Change Your Genetic Destiny.
2: Yep. It's in the book. It's very simple. Believe it or not, a lot of these things that we're talking about represent the most basic things you can do. If you can measure one finger and compare it to another, or you can measure whether your torso is longer than your leg, or whether your upper leg is longer than your lower leg, you know your blood type. At that point, you're going to simply do some simple things like look at your fingerprint patterns and make some analysis there. Then you go to a lookup chart, you calculate your genotype, you go to that chapter, you read about the diet, you look at the supplement recommendations, and away you go. If you just want to learn about the Genetic Destiny book, you can go to changeyourgeneticdestiny.com, or you can go to the main website, which is simply dagamo.com, d-a-d-a-m-o.com, and than people who don't know their blood type. You can buy a little home blood typing kit or you can go give blood at the local blood bank. But you can get this whole genotyping figured out in a half hour, probably for under $15. Compared to thousands of dollars people could spend on genetic testing, that's probably not going to be very relevant for them.
1: Now, what do you think about all the information now that's out on gluten free, casein free diets? What role does that play?
2: That's a great question because one of the things you'll discover when you do fingerprint analysis is to discover whether you do or don't have something called white lines. White lines are just simply like what it says. If you look at your fingerprints and there's a bunch of white lines that go through the fingerprint horizontally, you almost always have gluten problems. So people who have this phenomenon, which is not uncommon, are going to be advised to watch the gluten in their diet. Now, how would your fingerprint have anything to do with whether or not you're sensitive to gluten? Well, it turns out that most people understand that your fingerprints don't change, right? That's why the FBI keeps them on record. But the height of your finger Goes up and down. and The height of your fingerprint is associated with the gene that actually makes the lining of your intestinal tract as well. When the height of your fingerprints is so low that you start seeing creases underneath the fingerprint, which is what gives you the lines when you take the print, it means that your intestinal tract is compromised and you're probably gluten sensitive as well. Hmm. Can you imagine that this is something so simple and yet, believe it or not, they're doing intestinal biopsies to figure out gluten sensitivity on people when they could because they are not completely genetic and they're not completely environmental. In other words, they represent many of the developmental aspects that occur that we are so interested in when we're trying to figure out a person's genotype. The great thing about fingerprints is you can compare the patterns on each finger and that gives you an idea of something called symmetry. The more symmetrical a person is, in other words, the more your left side like your right side, the nicer time you had inside your mother. Because so Believe it or not, when you were getting made, the left side of you didn't know what the right side of you was. And so if they got it really good, they're relatively similar. But if you had a lot of stress in utero, you actually wind up with the similarities between the left side of the body and right side of the body. This is well known in biology. A matter of fact, it's also well known that when you go see a plastic surgeon that most women who want to find some picture to depict what they would like to have themselves turn into always pick pictures from actresses with very symmetrical features. And it's known in biology, for instance, when people are shown photographs, like when you show men photographs of women, Women photographs of men and ask them to pick who you would think the best biological partner for you would be. People always pick the face that's got the most symmetry. So we know from a very ancient biological developmental thing to look for symmetry in a mate because it equates with
1: fitness. For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to Michael Senoff's hard to find seminars.com. That is amazing. So it kind of fits into that whole idea of balance.
2: Go look at every Hollywood villain. If you out who makes a career playing villain, and they will always have, on purpose, they generally have asymmetrical faces. I mean, they don't have an asymmetrical face on purpose, but they're thought to be effective portrayers of criminals because we're inherently kind of made uncomfortable by people with a lot of asymmetry. Symmetry in biology is very common. For instance, I live in Connecticut, and we have the Connecticut Long Island Sound, and they have lobsters. And lobsters oftentimes will have a good year and a bad year. Maybe all of a sudden there'll be no lobsters. They know things are going to be bad, believe it or not. When they start calling lobsters out a Long Island Sound, they start measuring the two claws. And if the claws are very dissimilar, they know that next year there's not going to be very many lobsters. You know, the more the right side of you is like right, the left side of you, the nicer time you had inside of your mother.
1: The Institute for Human Individuality, what is that?
2: It's just a group of people who put on seminars. We try to get the brightest minds in the field to come present their findings and develop these approaches for more use in a clinical environment by physicians. And we try to foster research, try to get students in the medical colleges that can get doing this as well. Well, the most interesting thing would be to run a leg race between the odds that the government will solve all these degenerative diseases through taxpayer-funded research versus the odds that if you change your diet over sequential generations, actually engineer your tendency to get these illnesses out of your family. I would put my money on getting it out of your family because we've spent trillions of dollars and know an awful lot more than we did before, but we're no closer to actually solving the cancer bill. So wouldn't it be interesting if rather than sitting around and waiting for somebody to come up with a magic pill to basically treat cancer, we could figure out in those families where cancer runs right through the entire family, how can we get it out of that family's genome? Then we don't even have to cure it. We just have to deny it existence. You want to know what's going to happen is the world's going to get smarter, the world's going to get more networked, it's going to get more based upon individuals taking it upon themselves to learn about the things that they need to do. And the world and the world's going to divide into two camps, those who are willing to do it and those who are going to be willing to wait and have someone else do it. One person said that the problem with the American healthcare system is we park the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff.
1: If people want to really take charge of their health and change their genetic destiny and their health, pick up a copy of e Right for Your Type and Change Your Genetic Destiny. And what's that website again?
2: You can just put in blood type diet or phenotype or change genetic destiny into Google. It seems to come up number one in the search rankings, anyway.
1: Dr. D'Adamo, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh,
2: I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for having me.
1: That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.
0: That's the end of our interview with Dr. DeNamo. I hope this has been helpful. For more great interviews on health and nutrition, go to hardtofindseminars.com.